So I'm delighted to have you here this morning. I'm enjoying teaching this series. This is a series that's rooted in, I think, some very basic misunderstandings of God. And I'm glad to be able to work through those with you, give you some ideas of, of what, where my study and my life has led me on some of these important issues in hopes that it helps you figure out where you are on the same issues and, and, and what can or cannot work uh, in your brain to try and sort through this. I've entitled the series at this point, it's kind of morphed a little bit, Is God Guilty of Fraud? And the idea is I want us to be able to investigate different aspects of God that perhaps seem not to be as right as they should be. So let me start by telling you this. I had a chance a number of years ago, uh, probably within the last five to speak at Wheaton College on some different things. And while I was going to be up there, I was asked by one of the professors to teach his class, one of his classes on a certain day. I said, I'd be delighted to. Uh, I knew he was in the Bible department. I said, tell me what the class is. And he said, this is a class on how to share your faith. I said, wait a minute, you have a class for credit on that? He said, absolutely. Now, Wheaton, if you don't know it, is a very strong, not only Christian school, but it's a very strong academic school. I don't see your son-in-law in here, but your son-in-law went to Wheaton for an example. Yeah, it's your son. You're claiming him? Okay, uh, uh, no. Uh, uh, we've got a number of folks who went to Wheaton. It is a strong academic school as well as a strong Christian school. So these are, are young men and women who have their brains working well, who have their hearts right with the Lord, who are in service to God and seeking to figure out how to better share his kingdom. So I got in there and I said uh, to them, I said, okay, I don't know any of you. Never seen you before in my life. You don't know me. I'll probably never see you again. You'll probably never see me again. I'm going to give you each a blank sheet of paper. I want you to take this sheet of paper and I want you to write something. Don't sign your name. Recognize, I not only don't know you, I don't know your handwriting. You will have true anonymity. No one's going to know what you've written and associate it with you. Because I'm going to ask you to write something, I want you to fold it over. And then come put it in this trash can. Trash can was empty at that point. But it was big and it could handle all of it. I said, I'm going to stir up what you put in here. So there's no question of what have I pulled out when. And then I'm going to look at your answers to my question. And I'm going to use those to teach the class. So it's very important you write down the most honest answer you can, knowing you've got full anonymity, no one will ever know it. They said, okay. So I passed out the paper. Here was the question I, I, I posed to them. I know that you care about the Lord or you wouldn't be in this class. I know that you have faith or you wouldn't be seeking to share it. 
I know that you're, you're smart and successful in your academics or you wouldn't be in this school. So understanding all of that, I want to ask you to write down on this blank sheet of paper what is your own personal struggle in your own belief that there is a God and he is who he is. In other words, you're out sharing your faith, but all of us are examining our own faith. And I want to know what causes you the greatest anxiety, angst, difficulty, problem in your own faith walk of your own faith. So they filled it out. They folded it over. They brought it in. They dumped up. They dumped it in the trash can. I mixed them all up and then I pulled them out. And when I pulled them out, I said, just get y'all talk amongst yourselves for a minute. It won't take me long. Didn't take me long at all. And I sorted them. 75%, and understand there were about 43, 44 people in this class. Over 30 of them, 75% all fell into one basic category. If there is a good, all-powerful God, and he really exists, why is there so much misery? It took different forms. One of them said, why does he let a homeless crack addict have a baby? One of them said, uh, uh, why does he let bad things happen to good people? But most of them said something along the lines of good God, but he's got some bad stuff in the Old Testament. Because they'd been reading their Bibles. So I took all of these different questions that they had. And I had all of these questions in stacks. And I said, here's what I want to do. I want to investigate some possible answers to the most common questions you have. I want to do the same thing today. Because one of the areas where God gets accused of being guilty of fraud is the question that arises when you look at the Bible and you say, is this a God of war or is this a God of peace? So that's what we're going to address. And within that, that larger framework... Of, of why are things the way they are? Why is there evil in the world? Why does God let bad things happen to good people? Here's the problem. I can teach you some platitudes and some answers that go about one inch deep and get through with this in 45 minutes. But I won't be telling you anything you don't already know. Most likely. And I'm not sure that I'll give you any satisfaction in your answers. Let me tell you a second thing. I can give you an answer. But I can't think of anything more arrogant and haughty than to think that Mark Lanier in 2019 has answered a question 
that scholars have written gazillions of pages on and debated back and forth for longer than you would imagine. I'm not that smart. But that doesn't mean that there aren't things that we should think about. And that doesn't mean that there aren't answers to these questions that are sufficient enough to where someone can make a judgment. Is God guilty of fraud? No. You cannot prove that God is guilty of fraud. If I were defending him in a courtroom, I think I could walk this charge nine times out of ten. And the only time reason I couldn't walk it ten out of ten is because sometimes you get wacko juries, which is why we have appellate judges. So I'm going to borrow a little bit from Aristotle's way of reasoning and how we go about this. Here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to first make sure we understand the question itself. And then after we understand the question, I want to look at how other people have mechanically worked through the answers. And after we look at others' answers, we'll then look at some suggestions and ideas that I've got. The problem is I can't do it in 45 minutes. Here's the deal. It's going to take two, maybe three classes to walk through this. But that's the only way I can do it in any way that, that, that is instructive, that teaches, that offers anything. I'd love to be able to put this on a YouTube clip. Seven minutes, solution to the problem of God and evil. Bam! We'd get tons of hits. But the best I can do is break it apart. So if you're interested in more than I've got to say today, next Sunday is Easter. We do not have class. The Sunday after that, God willing, please come back and, or watch it on the internet. We live stream and then our incredible people post it afterwards and you'll get it either way. But, but please know, I just can't get to it all in one class unless you'll give me two and a half hours of your time and I'm hungry. <laughs> so that's what we're going to do. We're going to first look at the question and pose the question. Then we're going to look at various approaches to those questions that have been around for a long time. And then I'm going to give you some suggestions for how to look at it. So, let's start with the question. Now, I'm going to give you a picture and I want to ask you this simply. What's wrong with this picture? Are you ready? Here's your passage. Go strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Oh, might I add, that's God speaking. I mean, look at that. Don't run from it. Don't flip over it. Don't say, I don't like that. I'm going to read something out of John. <laughs> Take a moment. Let me move it to half. Uh, no, we're not, we're not really reading out of John. That was a joke. 
Go back to the PowerPoint. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to scoot it over to half of the screen because I want to contrast it to John. Let's look at some blue skies and rainbows and sunbeams from heaven. What I can see when my Lord is living in me. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You're also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Those are pretty stark differences, aren't they? How about this one? You've heard it said, uh, you've heard it was said, you'll love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, which is it? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? Or go strike them and devote them to destruction, don't spare them, kill the men, the women, the children, and the infants, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. How about this one? You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now you may think, well, Lanier, you just pulled out that one goofy passage out of the Old Testament. No, let's go back to Deuteronomy. How about this one? In the cities of these peoples... That the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. You shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites. As the Lord your God has commanded. I mean, do these seem like totally opposite to each other to you? So let's see. That's the question. Now, there are various approaches that have been used throughout the ages to talk about this. And I've tried to scan the, the written material thus far that I've got to email out to you guys that Brent's emailing out or has to email out. I think it's like we're at 35 pages so far, sorry. But the, the, you, you can, I, I've tried to scan for you approaches that span ideologies. I've looked at some Catholic works, Protestant works, Jewish works, works of believers, works of cynics, works of... of, of modern times, works of ancient times. To try to give you a smorgasbord, a buffet, from which to pick different ideas and say, now that's an interesting approach, or I don't agree with that approach, but it's fascinating, or what nitwit ever dreamed that one would be valid, or whatever it may be. Not all of these approaches are... I, I can't give you all of the answers and all of the approaches because there are too many. But I can give you some to give you an idea of how people have dealt with this and just know that like um, pizza, it comes in different shapes and sizes and flavors, but it's, it's all pizza. You know, you, you've got different approaches here 
different permutations at different times. I just have to single out some examples for teaching purposes, okay? So here are various approaches. And I got to warn you, these approaches are all over the map. Now, what some people do is they just approach one. They alter the text. They just decide they're going to change what the Bible says. They'll some say, well, that's clearly, you know, the writings of some pretty uh, sordid people who were thinking that's what God said, but that, you know, they, they are, or that someone has messed up and, and modified the text over time. So, so one thing that, that helps here, make sure we're all on the same page. If you've got an English Bible in front of you, Let's zoom way out here. If you've got an English Bible in front of you, the odds are your English Bible, unless somebody has snuck in here with a Tyndall Bible or something, the odds are your English Bible is one that's been done since 1611 when the King James authorized version was first published. King, whoop, James. His authorized Bible is first put out in 1611. Now the Bible you've got, if you've got a modern translation, the Bible you've got is one that's been translated from the best manuscripts available. But you can take the best manuscripts available and historically they're not autographs. We do not have the original manuscript for any part of the Bible. Until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest relatively thorough, complete Old Testament we had in Hebrew, dated from the 900s A.D. The last Old Testament book was probably written in the 300s B.C. So we're over a thousand years since the last book of the Old Testament had been penned. If you're looking for it in Hebrew. That's one reason the Dead Sea Scrolls were such a profound discovery as it allowed us to understand not only how the text has changed and evolved and things of that nature, but it also allowed us to see how incredibly accurate many of the scribes were who transmitted the text. Remember, they didn't have copy machines. They didn't fax. They didn't scan. They sat there bleary-eyed and looked at one copy while they wrote or a bunch of them, they, the, the mass copy machines would have someone reading while a bunch of scribes wrote so that they could do multiple copies at once. But, but that's the way it went down for centuries, for since, since the, the originals. And one of the things that happens when that happens is there are changes that sneak into the text. A lot of them are just almost irrelevant changes, spelling errors. Or if, if I'm reading to you and you're writing and I say, it is there, and you write T-H-E-I-R, not knowing it was supposed to be T-H-E-R-E. 
or two and you put T-O-O when I meant the number two, T-W-O. Those types of errors exist. Errors where words get flip-flopped. Sometimes you'll read the same line twice. Sometimes you'll read the same line twice. Because the person lost track of where they were. And just duplicate. So a lot of that's just very obvious. But it's also interesting because you've got... So, so when King James was translated, they grabbed a bunch of the translation out of the Tyndall Bible, which po- folks had given their lives to do. Um, the, the, and Tyndall himself, William Tyndale, was... was and died a martyr's death because he dared to translate the Bible into English. So King James relied upon that, relied upon some Greek manuscripts, but there were not a lot of old ones, and relied upon some Hebrew manuscripts, and actually relied also, for a good bit on it, on the Latin Bible, the the Catholic Bible, Jerome's Bible, the Vulgate. And so that's what King James used. But as scholars continued to grow, they thought, hey, let's go find more material. Let's find older manuscripts. Famous fella, Constantine Tischendorf, is down in the Holy Lands looking for manuscripts. He goes to St. Catherine's Monastery on Mount Sinai to see what the monks have there. He's in a room at night. They've got him some wood and some kindling to light a fire because it's cold, he puts the wood in there, he gets the paper that he's going to use to get it started, and he looks at the paper before he lights it, he says, huh, that's Greek. Huh, that's the Bible. And he goes to the monks and says, "Uh, where's the rest of the fire starter? (laughs) And he starts gathering the papers and finds what was a book, a codex of Scripture, That's one of the most complete early codexes. In fact, the most complete early codex we've got to date. Some date it as early as Constantine's order for 50 copies of Scripture. But it dates clearly into the 300s, the mid-300s. And uh, he carted a bunch of that off, and the monks still today are trying to get it back. Um, But uh, we've got a good bit of that Greek manuscript. But... The scholars start looking for more of this, and one of the things they found out is that during the years before Jesus, already scribes were making changes in the text to make it seem more like what it should read in their minds. In fact, I think it's Codex Sinaiticus. I'm 99% sure that it is. Or one of the fun passages, so you've got the the, oh, that Codex Sinaiticus was the name given to Tischendorf's find. It was found on Mount Sinai, that book of scripture. Sinai, so it's Sinaiticus. Codex means book, it, the kind of book that, that it, it was. And so you've got this Greek text that just goes down like this. And some fella, at one point in the text, some monk makes a change in one of the words. To make it read the way he thinks it should read. Figuring that some monk before him had messed it up. And then after him, some other monk comes and he writes down in the corner. He uses a kakon, uh, evil, but, but he means it kind of in, in this, in, in Lubbock speak. He wrote in the margin, hey, bozo, leave the text alone. 
because he didn't like them changing it. But you can find these changes. Somebody else might say, oh man, I really don't like this word that's there, so I'm going to pull out and I'm just going to put, maybe it should be this word X, Y, Z instead. And then a hundred years later, someone's copying and they see that and they think, oh, that person made a mistake. And so he's edited it over here and they put X, Y, Z in thinking it belongs. Scholars are able, there's a whole science of this and, and a history of scholars working on this. Well, let's go back to the PowerPoint. We can see where people altered the text because they didn't like what it said about God. So they come in, for example, you can read in, it's 2 Samuel 12, 9. That's an error in the PowerPoint. Excuse it. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? There's a good indication that perhaps the original actually said, why do you treat the Lord with contempt? But 150 years at least before Jesus, the scholars were thinking, ooh, that doesn't sound good. Treat the Lord with contempt. You know, thumbing your nose at the Lord. That language shouldn't even be in Bible. So let's instead talk about despising the word of the Lord, not the Lord himself, and doing what is evil instead of just thumbing your nose at him. There's a book called the Book of Jubilees. Jubilees is a recounting of, of the, the, the ancient history of Israel. And it's written, oh, we've got real scholars in here as opposed to lawyers who, who may know better than me. But I think it's written like 200 or so BC. The Book of Jubilees, does anybody want to fix me on that? Second century, okay, so 150 to 200 BC. Um, so you've got the book of Jubilees. Well, one of the problems they had was God telling Abraham, I want you to go kill your son. So the book of Jubilees softens that up. And as they recount the story, they've got a demon suggesting it to God. Because surely God didn't think of that on his own. And they've just changed the text. So that's one way to do it. You just alter the text. Another way to do it is just alter God. Let's just change who God is. So you alter God. Um, how do you, what, you, you, do you know what happens when you alter God? There's a word for that in the dictionary. It's called heretic. You don't change God. This is the biggest problem of our age in Western civilization. We have a tendency to have a bottom-up religion instead of top-down. Here's what I mean. We have a tendency to think what we believe God should be like instead of seeking to understand how He's revealed Himself. And we use our own reasoning to contemplate the divine as we, we know he's good, so what do we think is good? That must be what God is. We believe tolerance is important, so God is tolerant. We believe plurality is important, so God is into plurality. We believe uh, this is not immoral, so it's certainly not immoral to God. We, believe, we take what we believe and try to extrapolate it to God instead of taking what God has revealed himself to be 
and modifying and understanding our thinking about him accordingly. So this is just heresy. It's just altering God. One of the best examples of this in history was this fellow named Marcion. Now Marcion didn't grow up as a wackadoodle. His dad was a bishop in the church. But Marcion comes around in the 300s, he goes to Rome. And he starts his teaching in Rome. And he influences boatloads, boatloads of people. It takes the church a couple of hundred years to stamp out Marcionism. I mean, his writings were so offensive and yet caught fire. And propagated so fast. The church, we don't even have his writings today. We know what he taught because we've got the writings of those who wrote against him. And so, but, but he, was, he was not only so influential that his churches and his teachings were spreading like wildfire. Understand, he taught celibacy. Even in marriage. So his churches weren't spreading because everybody was having a bunch of kids and just bringing them up in the faith. He just altered God. He said it's like God's... Well, he didn't use the illustration of an old shoe and a new shoe. That's my illustration. But the, 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 the God of the Old Testament's just this shabby, mean, vengeful, hateful guy. Whereas the New Testament God is shiny and kind and loving. And he just says it's two different guys, two different shoes from two different pairs. It, it's totally different God. Here are some of his examples. The God of Genesis couldn't find Adam and Eve. He has to call out, hey, where are you? Yet we know that Jesus knew even the thoughts of men. So he says, got to be different. He said, uh, uh, the God of the Old Testament was an eye for an eye. Ooh, kind of God. But Jesus said, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. So you've got people who would alter the text. You've got people who would alter God. But then you've got a whole group of people that came up that just alter how you read the text. I want to give you an ancient example of that, but I want to give you a modern example of that. Ancient example. Uh, origin of Alexandria. Now, Alexandria, Egypt, was a, an intellectual hotbed. It had the world's largest library. It, um, uh, um, uh, the Jews had had an intellectual center there. For hundreds of years, a contemporary of Paul, whose writings we have, was Philo, a Jewish fellow, Philo of Alexandria. And we know that Philo was already reading the Old Testament in a very allegorical sense. So by the time you get to Origen, a teacher in the church and a leader in the church, you have Origen of Alexandria, who says that, in essence, when you read the Bible, you read it with special glasses. Okay, I worked really hard on that. Y'all need to look at it again. When you read the Bible, you read it with special glasses. 
by the way, those are not the actual glasses he wore. Um, I would liken his approach to a three-layer cake. He said that there are three different levels of, of or three different approaches to reading the Bible. The base level that anybody can do is just literal. You just read it and take it at face value. That, that's, that's, that's milk. Mother's milk. That's just, that's for the infants among us. That's not the meat. That's not something that, that you should, that, 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 that you strive to grow into and attain. That's the, the simpleton, shallow, surface reading of the Bible. There's a second level though, and that is the moral level, where you're reading scripture not just to understand a literal interpretation, but you're reading it to understand the morals that are being taught and the moral principles and the moral ideas. Then there was a third level, the highest level, the level to which the real scholastics and godly people could attain through study and diligence and, and application, and that's the allegorical level, where you read the Bible in an allegorical sense, especially the Old Testament. Now, we've got some of Origen's sermons, including sermons he gave on the book of Joshua, which is one of these books where the Israelites are fulfilling God's command to go wipe out all of the inhabitants of the promised land. Well, not technically all, but uh, 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 over time they were instructed, arguably, to displace them and to kill many. So let me give you some of what his sermons on Joshua reveal as the allegorical way, these are the glasses he would wear, to read these texts. The Canaanites, the Perizzites, the, the uh, Amal Malachites, you know, all of those folks, all of the different tribes that were being displaced, they allegorically represent humanity's sin. That's our sin. Now, allegorically, the age... I am so sorry. I don't know why I am turned Rice Krispies this morning with snap, crackle, and pop. But I may be doing something wrong. Excuse it. So, the, 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 the tribes, the nations, the peoples that are being destroyed are allegorical representations of our sin, humanity's sin. Now, the fact that the, the, the Israelites were told to destroy them of all ages and of all genders. That's a reflection on the idea that we're to destroy or take out all of our sin. Old sin and new sin. So it doesn't matter what the sin is. All of the sin is represented in the sense that it's old and new, uh, old and young, uh, infant, male, female, etc. And then the livestock that were to be destroyed, the livestock represent allegorically all of the things that go with the sin. So you read this passage in the Old Testament, and if you're reading it right, you don't say, Egads, what kind of God is this? You say, oh, now I understand. This is teaching me that all of my sin is to be destroyed, to put to death. 
And it helped his reading to know that Joshua is leading the army. Yehoshua, as his name would have been said in, in uh, Hebrew, or Yeshua, as a nickname, is the same name that Jesus has. So Joshua represents Jesus who leads us in that victory. By the way, if you're one of the people who says, how do you get Jesus from Joshua? Remember, the Greeks could not make the S-H sound. They don't have it. Shah. That's why Shaul becomes Saul. It's also probably why he used his Roman name Paul when he's out on the mission field. They can't say Shaul. They don't have an S-H in the Greek. And so um, uh, uh, you, the, the S-H for Joshua becomes just the Jasa, the Jesus. It's just the S for Jesus. But Jesus is Joshua. They're the same names. So here you've got it, and, and this allegorical reading removes the problem by altering the way you read the text. Now, I've given you an ancient example of that. Let me give you a modern one. I read Eric Siebert's book. Eric Siebert teaches, I think, at Messiah College. I, I may be wrong on that. But Eric Siebert is a college professor who wrote Disturbing Divine Behavior, Troubling Old Testament Images of God. And what Eric teaches his students, and this is a textbook that at least uh, uh, when I read it a couple of years ago, he was using for his students. He says, you read the Old Testament as a genre of literature, a type of literature. It's ancient historiography. And he says, as this type of literature, you need to understand it was written with a concern for persuading people not writing about objective history. So these speeches weren't really said. They're just put in there to further the storyline. God says go wipe out all of the people. That's not really God talking. That's just furthering the storyline. It makes it a page turner. And so you're like real into it. And that, that this was typical of this type of literature at the time. So read it accordingly. Now I've got some problems with that. The first thing that jumped out at me as I read his book, with due respect, if he watches this on the internet, I'm emailable. Email me. Tell me I'm wrong. I'd love to dialogue with you about it. But if, if the, the scholarship is, is not up to snuff, when he wants to cite certain things, at one point I think he cites a Finkelstein and Silberman. Israel Finkelstein is a is an Israeli scholar who's got some very uh, um, firm views on the Bible's distorted history of Israel, especially going back into the 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 Davidic times and before. So he doesn't have King David as a um, as the king of a of a big a kingdom um, of a sophisticated and developed kingdom. He likens King David to Pancho Villa with a ragtag band of, of uh, uh, Campaneros or whatever. I don't, if it's not food, I don't do very well with Spanish. But whatever his guys were. Um, it's on my to-do list. I got to get better. Um, 
but but he he you know he doesn't the exodus is a joke uh, a, a figment not a joke it's a it is a it is a an invention of later history to try to give national identity and purpose to the Israelites it's that type stuff uh, uh, Finkelstein and Silverman and Finkelstein in his own writings apart from Silverman talk about the the invasion of Jericho could not have happened because Jericho didn't exist in uh, the 1200 BC range where at least I, uh, as a late Exodus guy, think the Exodus took place. That's poor scholarship. I think it's poor scholarship by Finkelstein. Finkelstein and Silberman have a number of things in their book that are just categorically and falsely wrong. I mean, I've read it, I've looked, I've gone back to the sources, they're wrong. They wrote something for popular sell that is not historically based. Yet Siebert will cite them without doing his homework. He won't go back and do original research. That irks me. Strike one. Strike two. He says that you need a Christ-centered hermeneutic, so you read the Bible based upon Christ. I believe in a Christ-centered hermeneutic. I believe you read the Bible and understand the Bible in light of God's final word. Jesus. But I do not think that you can then pick and choose what you want to put in and what you want to believe. Don't get me wrong. Some parts of the Bible are clearly to be read as uh, uh, storylines. Uh, they're poetic. Or they're, 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 they're stories that, that, that drive home a purpose beyond a, 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 a factual narrative. But though they make themselves apparent, or at least apparent enough to where we would want to debate it, it's not left up to guesswork. Because the problem I've got is you can't say I want a Christ-centered hermeneutic when someone else is going to come up to us on Easter Sunday and say, well, I know that you believe the Bible says Jesus was raised from the dead, but that's just ancient historiography. Uh, obviously, he wasn't really raised from the dead. That just furthers the storyline of God is concerned about you. And where do you draw those lines? That's a strike three for me. Now, we're almost out of time, but let me give you one more. Some people, it alters how they, how they see God. They just alter the vision of God. I pulled up David Blumenthal's book, and I read it. Facing the Abusive God, a Theology of Protest. And his conclusion is that God is complex. The ways of the Lord are dark and mysterious. And sometimes, God is abusive. He says, not always. But he says, God is abusive. Here are a couple of quotes out of the book. Abusive behavior is abusive. It's inexcusable in all circumstances. He says, God is powerful, but not perfect. God blew it during the concentration camps and the final solution of the Third Reich. And this is just God at times... He's just not always on target. And at times he's abusive. And let's just have it out with him. Now to some degree I have some sympathy with what he says because some of what he says is argued by some psalms. There are some psalms that come almost out and say, that God, why on earth are you doing this? It's an expression of a legitimate human concern. But I don't think it's truly the image of God. I think it's 
humanity doing bottom-up religion and theology instead of top-down. So I strike him out as well. He's just not um, uh, what I think is the answer. You look at the passages from Deuteronomy, from the Psalms, from the Gospels. God is perfect. So what do we do? Well, there are several more approaches, including a number by friends of mine. Uh, Trimper Longman, very dear friend of mine. Uh, I'll look at one of his approaches next uh, in two weeks. Tell you the things I like about it, but also tell you where I disagree with him. Or I think he may be off a little bit. And, uh, and, and, and I can't wait to tell you the solutions that, that aren't solutions, but are at least considerations that I think you ought to take into account when addressing this problem. Some very fundamental questions I would ask if I were in trial on this issue. What I'm telling you is, is the best part of this class I can't get to yet. So you got to come back in a couple of weeks. But I will tell you when we're through, my conclusion is God guilty of fraud is a big no. So here's your take home for now to last you for a couple of weeks. First, ask for wisdom. Chokmah in the, the Hebrew, ask for wisdom. An ability to see things as God sees things in his righteousness. James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. When we're thinking about these subjects, it is appropriate to say, God, would you please give me wisdom here? Help me to understand. Help me to set aside what I want the answer to be. And help me to find some satisfactory considerations that give me something in this life to better understand this problem. Pray for God's help. And then come back in two weeks and let's see if part of his answer to your prayer is there. Next, I really want to make a concerted effort in my life. This is the season in my life where I'm really desperately fighting to see God as God. Not my concept of God, but who he is. I want to set aside who I want him to be, who I think he should be. Instead, try to understand him for who he is. Because I'm absolutely convinced when I do that, it will trans, and, and as I've been growing in that, it transforms not only my understanding of Him, but it transforms my understanding of me and of you and of the world around us. And part of that root is an understanding, as Jesus said, there's not one who is good except God. So some of what we've got to do is re understand what it means to be good. And then my final take home for today is I urge you to welcome his spirit. God's spirit is at work within us. The prophet Zechariah said in the 13th chapter, the 8th verse, he, that, that God spoke through Zechariah and God said, I will refine them as one refines silver. And I offer you that because if you're at a point in your life where you feel like, why is God letting this happen to me? 
one of the assurances. Have you ever seen or read how silver is refined? Silver with all of its impurities? I promise you, I can, I can, I'm not a chemist. I'm not a metallurgist. But I promise you this is true. They do not refine silver by saying, Hi there, little silver with all your contaminants. I'm very proud of you. You've got great potential. Contaminants flee. <laughs> That's not the way it works. It's melted in great heat. And the impurities, the dross rises to the top and is skimmed off. And God uses that analogy to talk about how he's going to transform us. Now that may not be what we want from God. But he's not the God we want. He's the God who is. And we'll do a whole lot better in our lives if we grow to understand that. So work with me in that regard. Let me bless you in the name of Jesus. Or ask God's blessings in the name of Jesus. And we'll uh, uh, have a good last week of, of Lent. Father, I thank you so much for the chance to uh, um, talk through some very difficult issues. Lord, we want to see you. We want to see you for who you are. We want you to transform our understanding of right and wrong. We want you to transform our vision for the world. We want you to transform who we are. We need your wisdom, Lord. Would you give us your wisdom? Would your spirit work to teach us, to convict us, to remind us of the truths that emanate from you so that we can grow and better reflect your glory to the world around us, better follow your will in our lives, in our work, in our schools, in our homes, with our friends, with our foes, to better be part of the kingdom that is coming. We pray in the name of our Lord Jesus, amen. Amen, and God bless you all.